From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. You know it's May when weather delays become a significant story across multiple sports. And while it's usually limited to Rainsville, literal and some figurative storm clouds wreaked havoc on the Gators this week, everywhere from Alabama to Illinois. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss softball feeling super, baseball staying afloat in Hoover, men's tennis and lacrosse both running into NCAA tournament buzzsaws, football's big catch from the portal, Torian Green's return to the basketball complex, and potential SEC scheduling solutions in the PAT. Then, catcher B.T. Ryapel joins us to share how he's become a team leader despite being in his first season with the Gators, how Sully has managed them through the roller coaster of a year, and much more. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan who loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where animal lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. As we crank up this week's roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, uh, a number of things to hit, some of which have unfortunately come to a close sooner than we hoped and, and thought that they would, and then others still very much in progress. Let's talk about the ones that are still ongoing. Uh, one of those is softball, and Chris, they're headed to Super Regionals once more, but for the first time since 2007, they're going to be doing that on the road. So talk about what we saw this weekend from the Gators and, and how we think that might translate as they go to Virginia Tech. Well, they certainly hope everything that they saw this week translates because as of right now, after uh, <clears throat> excuse me, first round regional weekend, uh, the Gators are the number one uh, batting team in the NCAA tournament and the number one run scoring team in the NCAA tournament. So uh, that's you know, quite a move from, you know, some of the some of the games this season when runs and hits were hard to come by, especially with runners in scoring position. But, you know, Florida scored 11 runs in a game that got them to the Super Region, the win over Wisconsin uh, over the weekend. So now they play a Virginia Tech team. And, you know, you know, when you're talking about the heavy hitters in national softball, maybe Virginia Tech doesn't come to mind. I think I saw somewhere, and Adam, this was back in your day in school, I think Florida played Virginia Tech in the College World Series one year. They did, and yeah. Beat them two to nothing, I think, in a nine inning game. Might yeah. have been right one of one of the first times Florida went to the College World Series. That was in two thousand eight. That was Florida's first trip to the World Series, uh, and that That's- was against Angela Tincher who was the best pitcher in the country. Basically, that was back in the day when if you had one great pitcher, you could get to the World Series just on the strength of that. So Florida actually beat Virginia Tech, as you mentioned, in extra innings uh, in an elimination game. They actually ended the career of one of the best pitchers of all time. So there is some history, but it is a ways back. But I noticed they also played nine teams from the SEC and went six and three. They did, yeah. Uh, they beat Tennessee. They beat Tennessee. They beat. They lost Alabama twice. But uh, I think they beat Kentucky uh, three times, including twice last weekend. So uh, this is a very capable team. Obviously, they're going to be at home. The place is going to be crazy. They're, they're, you know, Virginia Tech's known for its rowdy crowds. So uh, 
you know, Florida doesn't have any reason, you know, not to play at its best after coming off a, uh, a weekend where it's probably very confident in terms of offense. Hannah Adams has been uh, with the team, you know, a couple weekends now. So go up and see if they can fly and get to Oklahoma City for the first time since 2019. Yeah, I also looked at uh, Virginia Tech's schedule expecting, oh, well, you know, they're not in the SEC and maybe they haven't really played anybody. They played a really good schedule and they beat a lot they of did. people. So, and yeah, that's why they're the third. That's why they're the third seed in in in, in this tournament. For, absolutely, for good reason. Yeah, no question about it. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens Friday, Saturday, and then possibly Sunday as well. Uh, the Gators in Blacksburg. Uh, let's turn our attention to the other, the bat and ball sport on the baseball side. And and Scott, the uh, you know, the beat keeps rolling for the Gators. They've stayed hot. And at the moment, as we're speaking right now, they're preparing to play their second game in Hoover, though who knows when that will happen, the way the schedule has gone there. It's, it's been about as bad as you could possibly have from a weather standpoint. Um, they've almost gone through a day and a half. They've only played three games. Um, but Gators found another way to win in round one, and they knocked South Carolina out, actually ended their season. Um, and they continue to find ways to win in, in ways that they did not earlier in the year. Yeah, Adam. With the way the with the way the SEC tournament's starting, I mean, they could still be playing next week when we record this podcast. <laughs> so we'll have to see how that shakes out. But uh, you know, this is again, it's baseball. You know, it's a long season. You can't get too high or too low. And Gator fans who got real low in the middle of the season, well, now they're starting to starting to ride that roller coaster up with the, the team. They've won what thirteen of sixteen now. Uh, ended the regular season in really good fashion. And then, of course, they opened the SEC tournament on Tuesday night with a, you know, bottom of 10th inning win. And we'll see how it shakes out at them. Have they done enough to play themselves into hosting a regional? Very unlikely unless they were to win in Hoover. If they win, then, I, yeah, I think they're going to host. Otherwise, you know, at least three wins up there I think are going to be needed. So they're probably going somewhere on the road uh, in regional play. but. Considering where they were about six weeks ago and, you know, without the absence or with the absence of Hunter Barco, you figured, okay, you know, their best see their best days of this season are behind them. But, you know, guys like Brandon Sprope, Brandon Nilly, Nick Pogue, really, it's I, I, I give all the credit to those three guys. I mean, they, they've hit the ball well all season, uh, but they had to get some starting pitching consistently to really make a run like this. And that's what they st- – They've started to get Brandon Sprout, who was excellent against uh, South Carolina in the first game of the SEC tournament, carried a no hitter to the seventh. Uh, just he's he's been doing that a lot more consistently. And then of course Brandon Nilly, SEC freshman of the week pitcher, uh, after what he did in the regular season finale, uh, you know the final series against South Carolina, he's come on. And then Nick Pogue, who I mentioned, he's. You know, he's been coming back from this arm surgery he had after the 2019 season. We really didn't know what to expect of him, guys. And uh, suddenly he's starting to pitch pretty well. So, you know, you know how baseball is. You get three starting pitchers who are pitching well. That can do a lot of damage in the postseason. So, we'll like, again, we'll see how it shakes out. But right now, uh, they are definitely playing their best ball of the year. By the time you hear this, who knows uh, where the Gators will be in the SEC tournament and where the SEC tournament will be overall. It's one of the most confusing things ever. The first round is single elimination. Then it goes double for a couple days. Then it goes back to single. It's a very weird uh, bracket. It doesn't make a lot of sense to most people. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how it shakes out and where that lands Florida when it comes to regionals. 
Uh, let's talk about some sports that that wrapped up their play over the weekend. And one of them we knew was going to be finished regardless, but we thought there may be a different outcome, and that would be men's tennis. And Chris, we talked about a week ago, they had basically steamrolled their way through into the Elite Eight, uh, and then they got to, to Champagne, and the Champagne was not popping for them after all. Uh, there was some rain delays and weather issues that didn't help, but ultimately uh, Florida just did, they did not quite have their best against Virginia, the eventual national champion. Yeah, and speaking of steamrolling, let's give uh, Virginia credit. I mean, <laughs> we, we talked all along uh, the last few weeks about how well um, Florida was playing, how stacked and, and deep and talented that roster was and how, how they'd strung together, you know, 21 wins in a row, 22 wins in a row. Well, lo and behold, uh, Virginia wins its last 23 matches of the season and knocks off Florida, knocks off Tennessee, locks off Kentucky, all in Illinois to capture a national championship. And, uh, and this it's obviously wasn't a – they were seated seventh. So you may have you – know, from a fan standpoint, that may have been something uh, people might have been overlooking, and you know, maybe even including me for all I know. But Virginia won its fifth national championship in the last 10 years. So wow. uh, this, this wasn't exactly, you know, maybe one as big of an upset as maybe we thought. Maybe how Virginia played earlier in the season uh, was not, obviously not was not indicative of how they were playing as they rolled uh, through the ACC, through their uh, regional on their home court, and obviously took uh, their best games to, uh, to Champaign and, uh, I tell you what, right when the match ended, Florida was in good shape, actually, strangely enough. Uh, they just needed uh, Duarte Valley to, to kind of hold on and kind of stave off some save off that sick, the final six, three uh, loss in the, in the, in the third set, because I think Josh Guger was out there. He was ahead. Ben Shelton was ahead on his court. And, and, and so it was, it was three, one, some weird things could have happened. Maybe Duarte could have, held off a little longer and those other guys maybe could have closed out their matches. Maybe some things wouldn't have been different, but it wasn't meant to be. And, you know, we're sitting here talking probably like, you know, the season ended in disappointment, but let's kind of, you know, catch ourselves. And here's where the old perspective police from Matt Gators, Chris has to come in <laughs> because uh, two SEC championships in a row, an unbeaten SEC season, uh, champions of the SEC uh, men's tennis tournament, uh, a couple years ago when, when this program was spinning its wheels and falling out in the Sweet 16, I mean, people would have killed for a season like this. And yet, looking back going, you know, what might have been with possibly with a chance and people were talking about a second straight championship. No, it didn't happen. But uh, uh, kudos to that team this year. They had a phenomenal season. Didn't end the way they wanted, obviously. But uh, we'll see what happens with their uh, individual in the, in the singles competitions. Like, that'll play out. I don't know if the rain will wreck havoc on the on the situation like everything's going on in Hoover right now but um you can't be too down on what Gators men tennis not only did this year but what it has become and obviously what the future holds under Brian Shelton's uh, leadership Another sport that we talked about last week in the NCAA tournament was lacrosse. And Scott, we knew it was going to be a huge challenge for them going to play a Maryland team that's perennially one of the best in the country. They've won a lot of national championships. Um, and there was a big gap between the two teams when they played earlier this season. There was still a big gap when they played uh, in the Elite Eight. Yeah, I mean, they got the Gators did everything they needed to do to get there, winning 15 in a row, tying a program record. But again, that disparity showed up on the field between Maryland and the Gators in the game. I mean, 18 to five 
it was relatively close at halftime. I think they, I think Maryland went on a seven nothing run in the third quarter, and it, you know it, it's it just really speaks to this this Gators team um, and the program. Really, it's it's really good at getting to the elite eight. It just had trouble getting past it, and the sport is you know it's loaded at the top with the Marylands, the North Carolinas, the Syracuses, the Stony Brooks. And Florida has been on the verge of joining that that group, but for whatever reason hasn't yet. And uh, we'll see if they if they can you know do it next year. Uh, it's what this season was the thirteenth year of the program, I think. First one they didn't make the NCAA tournament, but I think they've made it every year since. And of course, they made it to the Final Four once in two thousand twelve, and that's kind of the goal when you do that in your second or third season as a program. That's what Amanda Leary is seeking to do, and. They've knocked at the door, but for whatever reason, haven't been able to get there. 2022 is no different, Adam. Let's talk about some sports that are out of season, uh, but personnel moves. One personnel move on the field, one that is this off the courts. So we'll start with the field side on football. Uh, Scott, we talked about the transfer portal. Gators have been major players for a lot of big names. Many of them have not come through, but one this past week finally did. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ricky Pearsall was a guy who, you know, Florida fans were certainly familiar with it. You know, he's he's in the portal and he's having some interest from uh, several schools, Florida being right at the top. And uh, he came down to really, I think, Florida and Oregon at the end. He was Arizona State's leading receiver last year. He had 48 catches, almost 600 yards, four touchdowns as a third-year sophomore. And, you know, Billy Napier, guys, through spring, one thing he did point out was he felt that that receiving room lacked depth. And not only does Pearsall immediately add depth, I mean, he has talent. I, I'll go ahead and kind of pencil him, I think, probably in the starting lineup with, what, Justin Shorter and uh, uh, Trent Whittemore. It seems like those three would kind of be your, your leading three guys to be starters. Then you got Xavier Henderson and Jamarcus Weston and some other guys down depth. But Pearsall connected well with Kiri Colbert, who, as you recall, he uh, – at USC, he recruited Drake London, who went in the first round of this year's draft, actually the highest drafted skill player in the whole draft. The Falcons took him, I think, at number seven or eight after all those offensive linemen and a, a couple of defensive guys. So uh, Pearsall, you know, he wants to play at that level too. So Colbert was a, a, helped him get to Florida, and now uh, he arrives with a, a situation that's fresh for him and for the Gators. And coincidentally, he obviously didn't want to stay at Arizona State. Emory Jones is probably going to be their quarterback. So it's just weird. It's almost like a trade, guys. It's like yeah. you know, it felt like Pearsall comes here, Emory goes out there. So uh, strange how it is, but that's what we got to talk about these days. That's college football. Yeah, college football is weird these days. And uh, it, it's, <laughs> it seems to be actively getting weirder as well. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, before we move on to that PAT, I do want to bring up basketball real quickly here, Chris. We talked about it when it was initially sort of floated. We knew it was happening. Um, but officially in the last week, Torian Green has been added to the Gators staff. Uh, and, you know, really interesting opportunity for, uh, for Todd Golden to make a connection to a key part of Florida's past. Yeah, not only officially, physically. He is in his office. Uh, I went and visited him and sat in him with him for a little bit for a story that uh, I'll do on his homecoming, if you will. And, and, and he's excited. It's something. This is a guy he played it, uh, after winning those two national championships 
Uh, he got drafted, didn't, didn't play in the NBA, but played 13 seasons overseas in nine different countries. Wow. Uh, obviously, won two uh, national championships in, in particular, I believe France and Poland. He won, he won uh, championships in those countries. Um, uh, he, and and found, his, uh, found his niche. He's always, always wanted to be a coach. Obviously, his dad was a coach uh, after a pretty good uh, NBA career. Um, but it's always been something he has, he has a passion for, for what he called development. And lo and behold, he's, he's the head of player development. Now what that's going to entail is something uh, that needs to be defined. I think there are, there, there are rules and what have you, but he's going to be heavily involved in day-to-day operations, uh, day-to-day dealings with players. He's all uh, with, pl- with players on the team. He's also going to be involved with bringing players back. And obviously he's going to be very, very good at that because obviously Torian Green knows a few former players with some stripes on their arms. Mm-hmm. And so those guys are going to be more involved with the program. I think uh, if you talk to some players privately, there's been a disconnect with the past and that is not going to be the case anymore. Todd Golden has made that uh, clear that he wants to embrace the glory eras of Gator basketball because he wants to replicate the, the glory days of Gator basketball. And Torian Green is, is a guy who uh, blended in spectacularly during, the, during Billy Donovan's, during his three seasons with Billy Donovan, and obviously Noah and Horford and Brewer and Humphrey and what have you. And has made, he loves the school. Uh, he's a Florida guy. He has ambitions to be a coach one day. He loves the, uh, the process of building a player. Um, when I talked to him, he talked about how, as great as the players are in the NBA, he found out how, I don't want to say little they know, but there's something lacking about true knowledge of basketball. Okay. And maybe it's a little bit IQ here, IQ, because guys are so good. They can do so much on their own, but so much of, of what he thinks he can teach guys here in time is nuances of the game, how to play basketball and how to think the game a little bit better. And you go from, uh, you know, DeMar DeRozan to Kowasi Reeves. Well, maybe some of that he can, he can see what, what some of these guys, Zach Levine and what have you did there and maybe help guys here with that. Certainly when you start throwing names around like that, players now can connect with right now. Maybe they don't remember Torian Green, the player, but they know who Zach Levine is. Okay. And Torian Green just spent a year with them and Billy Donovan with the Chicago Bulls in a director of player development role. Now he has that role with Florida. He's very much looking forward to it. And he looks very much at home sitting behind a desk in the basketball office with a Florida Gator t-shirt on. Let us move on now to our PAT this week. And, uh, you know, before we do the PAT, I wanted to do, let's quickly do the one that Scott wanted. Okay. You better have a good answer for this, Scott. Who would win a cage match between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher? (laughs) Just like who wins all the football games. I'm taking Nick Saban any day. (laughs) Jimbo's, He's a uh, emotional redneck. He'd get in there and lose his composure, and Saban <laughs> would just be over there like, "Okay, I got him," and then he'd stick somebody on like one of those five-star offensive line recruits would just come off the top rope and pound on Jimbo. If you know Saban would take care of it pretty fast. Uh, Chris, do you concur? Yeah, I concur. I I just think that Saban has all the championships, and now I know I know both of them has have that West Virginia background and growing up like I just. I just think Nick Saban has probably been in a few uh, back alley kind of things uh, before. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not sure the fight would necessarily be fair. Okay. But I think he would, uh, Nick Saban would wind up on top. 
whether it means like he's got a rock in his pocket or a, a shank or something like that. But uh, it would end up going his direction like just about every other game when the two guys play off to. So now that we satisfied Scott's curiosity, we can get to the real PAT this week, which is about the future of SEC football scheduling. Uh, now, there's been a lot of talk that at the upcoming meetings, there might be some decisions made about what the future of the SEC schedule looks like once Texas and Oklahoma come into the fray and make it a 16-team league. And it seems like a lot of those discussions are going to be around how can teams play each other more often who don't normally do so. So to avoid having seven-year gaps where you don't play somebody, or in the crazy case I read, somehow Georgia has never had to play at A&M despite being in the league for 10 years. Florida's played there twice during that stretch. Yeah, and Florida's playing there again this year. So there's definitely some inequity in scheduling that they're trying to address. Uh, if you guys were calling the shots, if you were in, in the if you were in the room where it's going to happen, what would you propose as the best way to do SEC scheduling going forward? Let's just be copycat like what's the hottest trend right now in college football. Scrap division. Yeah. I go ahead and scrap the divisions. I'm I'm already got Texas and Oklahoma in the league. So we've got 16 teams. You know, uh, let's just take the Gators case. I think you you kind of start with there are three real rivals in the league to me. Uh, I mean, LSU, Tennessee, Georgia. I'd like to see those games continue. Then after that, man, just free-for-all. Like, take a school on the uh, that you're not playing Texas, Oklahoma, make it home-and-home back-to-back years, go down the list and do the other one. You know, just keep doing it like that. So you you don't necessarily play them a lot over a five or six year period, but you almost play them at least three or four times over a 10 or 12 year period. And you don't have these huge gaps. So, but, you know, I don't know if there is a perfect solution, but I kind of like where we're headed because it's like everything else. It's just, it's up for grabs. Everybody's throwing darts at how, you know, what's the schedule going to look like, divisions, no divisions. SC, I mean, Oklahoma, Texas, you know, there's already debate. Will Texas and Texas A&M renew their rivalry now that they're going to be in the league? You mm-hmm. surely hope so, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, maybe you guys have a more structured idea. I just think you just make sure you play every school in the conference at least a couple of times over a seven or eight-year period if you have 16 teams. One thing that we know – that we just have to assume. Okay, first of all, I, I like divisions personally, but I understand the problem with, you know, it's, if it's split in two divisions, you got to play seven teams. So there's seven games right there. If it's four, then it's, I, or I don't even know how you do that, to be honest with you. What, 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 I, what, I, what we know has to be accepted is the, the idea of tradition is got to be kind of put at the back burner if they're going to figure this whole thing out. You're already screwing with tradition by bringing Texas and Oklahoma in in the first place. You screwed with tradition by bringing Missouri and Texas A&M in the first place. Right. So I think what Florida is going to have to wrap its arms around and its fans are going to have to wrap its arms around is they're going to lose LSU as a, as a permanent opponent. And remember the uproar when they lost Auburn as a permanent opponent? Yeah, okay, I do, but a lot of people don't. And we worked our way through that. So uh, maybe it ends up being Georgia and maybe South Carolina and Oklahoma or the permanent opponents or something like that. But um, I, I, I just think that 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 thing, the whole tradition and what our mindset is, Florida has to play this team. Florida has to play that team. 
and if it's out of a division format, I, maybe maybe you can you certainly salvage Georgia and you salvage Tennessee. Uh, maybe LSU is the one that's out and things got to kick around a, a, a little bit differently. But it can't go like, you know, Georgia went forever without playing Alabama, correct? Yeah. It seemed like it. Yeah. And like you said, uh, there's, there's, there's no reason Georgia hasn't gone to Texas A&M. That's a joke. So something has to be done. And those guys pay to get paid a hell of a lot more money than I do to get, figure that stuff out. I don't know. They may not make as much as Scott. Maybe Scott, maybe Scott can go to Destin next week and figure it all out with him. I'm just, I just want to go to see the cage match between Jimbo and Saban. That's really what I want to go. I think, I think a lot of the national media that probably may have had plans on vacation are being dispatched to Destin next week for that very same right. reason. Just imagine the elevator. Go ahead, guys. You got it. Yeah. Put him in an elevator. Put him in an elevator and watch all these guys start running up the stairs to see the doors open and see which guy like actually falls out of the of the elevator car on the twelfth floor. That would be beautiful. What's what's the tallest building in Destin? That may limit the uh, the time that that uh, elevator ride can take place. I'm pretty sure the San Destin Beach Hilton, where the meetings are, is 13 stories. So maybe one of them takes an easier way down. Who knows? It sure made for some good college football humor on a slow week last week. And, yeah. Uh, it also kind of just crystallized where the sport is right now. A state of perpetual confusion where no one seems to know what the rules are, and more importantly, who is and is not following those rules, whatever they are. Uh, yeah. Again, it, it's evolving. That's why we're here to talk about it with you guys. Um, but thank you for your perspective on that. We'll see how it shakes out. We'll also see what happens uh, this coming weekend with both baseball and softball. Scott will be on top of baseball. Chris will be on softball. Make sure to check them out over at FloridaGators.com. And we'll be back next week to talk about it. Thank you, guys. All right, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Young teams require strong leadership, and though logic suggests that would come from players who spent years in the program, sometimes an outsider comes in and immediately takes the mantle. That's been the case for catcher B.T. Ryapel, who came into the program after playing three years at Coastal Carolina and quickly established himself behind the plate and in the clubhouse. We spoke to the recently named All-SEC first-teamer to learn more about his story and what qualities make him the ideal alpha. I was originally born in Boca Raton, Florida. Yeah, my dad was, uh, he was in the military. He was stationed down in, uh, in the Coast Guard in Key West in um, Miami for 16 of his 24 years. Wow. Um, so I'm a, I'm a South Florida kid at heart, I guess you could say. But uh, I did grow up in Atlanta. My parents, uh, whenever my dad retired in 2000, um, we had a short stint in, in Colorado. He kind of helped my my aunt join up um, her business or whatever, and then moved to Atlanta. And I stayed there until I graduated high school. My parents are down in Florida, back down in the Tampa area now. But that's that's pretty much where I came from. Yeah. Um, from military family. My mom's in uh, with TJ Maxx, works for them, has for 12 years now. So nice. Do you get extra discounts on top of the TJ Maxx <laughs> discounts? Oh, you get the 10% associate discount, but it's not really needed. You know, it's already no. a, a low cost store. You can you can save a dollar off the ten dollar pants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's funny. You actually, I think you're the second straight athlete I've interviewed who came from a, a military family. Um, what impact do you feel like that had on you? Whether it's the moving, whether it's the like the fundamentals drilled into you, like what impact has that had on your life? I think it had a, a huge impact on my life. Um, 
you know, luckily for me, I wasn't really involved with the whole military aspect of moving and things of that sort because my dad did retire 22 years ago. But I, I like you said, the the things that he's has instilled in me um, and my family, not necessarily just being regimented and and doing things the right way, but just having good morals and um, treating people with respect and just things of that sort that I, I really appreciate. It's really benefited me. Um, and I think my character now, you know, the things that he's learned, the things that he's seen um, that a lot of people don't get to do and don't get to experience. They, you know, I really haven't experienced, but I feel like I have a lot more um, to touch on and to really like, I guess I can, I can kind of feel for or sympathize with some people because the things that he's seen and done, you know, just things like that. And you kind of hit it on the head for sure. Um, so, okay. So we've established where you came from and, and that background. When did baseball get into the picture? When did you first start playing? Was it, was it love at, at first sight? How did that early part of baseball go? Well, I always had a ball in my hand, whether it was a basketball, football, baseball, some sort since I was a kid, um, since I was born really. Um, I always love to be active, be outdoors, do, you know, outdoorsy things um, with my friends and, Baseball wasn't really always something that I knew I wanted to do when I grew up at all. I was I was a huge football guy. Um, I started playing baseball when I was four, but I played so many different sports. I mean, I wanted to play hockey when I was younger, but my mom said no because uh, there was just one more thing she had to take me to all the time, you know, <laughs> and you can only balance balance so many things. But um, it's something that I've kind of, you know, really gathered. And, you know, people and coaches have always told me if I focus on one sport, you know, I how high the the ceiling is for me and um knowing that I wasn't going to play college football I kind of got into baseball and you know it kind of just went off from there and and I ran with it and uh it's and I absolutely love it were there a lot of athletes in your family like did was that always kind of established you were going to be an athlete or were you kind of the the first of that wave not at all I mean my dad played basketball and he and ran cross country when he was in high school um, uh, enlisted himself into the military right out of high school. So he never really got any any of that experience at, at the collegiate level. Um, he grew up in a really small town in Michigan, so just played there. Um, my mom really is she, you know, was a cheerleader in high school, like every other girl seemed like. But, uh, you know, she doesn't really have any athletes in her family. Um, but other than that, it was really just me. They kind of. I don't, I don't know how it, how it popped up or whatever. I guess I just got the good gene from both sides. But yeah. um, no, I have no athletes in my family at all. Hmm. So it's the reason I asked that too is because I feel like a lot of people who get to the level you're at are there because that's sort of established early on. Like that's a path you can take because your parents did it or maybe you have older siblings who did it. How did you come to the realization that not only did you like playing baseball, but that it could be a career. It could take you as far as it has and, uh, and hopefully even beyond this. I think the first thing is I've had a lot of really good mentors and coaches um, along my time in years and that I have played sports, whether that be football or baseball. Um, you know, one thing that my dad always told me was really listen to people that are around you that have experienced a lot of things prior um, that you necessarily haven't experienced or, or had, um, you know, that experience doing. So I guess really for me, it was to, and especially with my dad too, not being a huge sports guy, um, just really listen to people that know what they're talking about. Um, just kind of learn from their experiences, learn and take as much as I can, eat the meat, spit out the bones, stuff like that. Um, and, and when people tell you stuff that I trust, you know, I, I, I trust what they say. And, um, you know, if they give me a, a ceiling for me in, in which that I could potentially reach, 
Um, so why can't I do it? You know, you know, I've had people tell me before you, you know, if you don't play both sports, you play one, you could be really good at it, whatever. Um, you have the ability what and, and that kind of stuff. It was just like, for me, it was a game. I always loved just playing it, enjoyed competing, enjoyed playing with my friends, meeting new people, creating, you know, connections and stuff like that. That was always how it was for me until um, I got the opportunity to play in college. And then I just gave it my all to see how far I could go. So when you started getting recruited and when this became a, uh, a real possibility for you, what do you remember about that process? Which schools were you most interested in? Take me back to, to that mindset. Well, out of high school, um, I really didn't get any. Uh, I was, like I said, I was a huge football guy. Um, so I didn't really do a lot of perfect game stuff. I didn't do a whole lot of camps. I never went to a showcase. I never went to any of those, of those things to kind of really put my name out there. Um, because I was playing football, summer ball and stuff like that, getting ready for the season. And my junior year, you know, I played on a team um, with Mike Hurst, who recently passed away, but he was a the all time winningest coach at Georgia State was un, ended up being my summer coach for five, six years. Um, and he really had a lot of good things to say about me. I had a great relationship with him and he put my name out there for me. I ended up just playing a summer ball game one night and Coastal Carolina saw me and it's kind of a diamond in the rough kind of thing and was a blessing in disguise for me to go there. And, uh, that, and I, they saw me one night and I committed the next day. Wow. Uh, it, it was very quick, short, uh, and easy. It was a perfect fit for me at that time. And, and I, uh, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. So you spent three years at Coastal Carolina before you ended up at Florida. Um, what did you take away from your time there? What are some of the, the memories that you have when you think back on that? I mean, there's so many people that, you know, have impacted my life, um, not just on the baseball field, but off a lot of coaches, especially there. Now I still have a great relationship with with a lot of them there. And um, my academic coach, Walter Goffigan, who played football at, at Wyoming in the NFL, he had a lot of good insight on a lot of different things with the professional level of sports. And, you know, just so many people that touched my life when I was there, um, but especially, you know, the sport. Uh, of baseball too. Uh, it was a very high level program that had a very long track of success um, with coach Gilmore and Kevin Schnall, Matt Schilling, Drew Thomas, all of them, all the coaches there really gave me a chance to play at the highest level and, and really made me into the player I am today. So obviously you're now at Florida, so you did make a decision to transfer. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what sort of went into that decision. Why was that the right move for you and why was Florida the place to go? Well, for me, I left because, um, you know, with the COVID year happening and whatnot, I didn't think my chances to play um, professional ball were were really in the cards for me anymore. For me, I've always found myself that school is the most important thing um, and that I can find myself very successful in the business world one day. And I really need to set myself up elsewhere for whenever baseball does finish up. Coastal Carolina isn't necessarily the most reputable degree uh, in the world. I knew that I'd, I needed to leave there and uh, find a place to go get a really good degree and hopefully play, play baseball as well. I entered the portal and kind of like my previous um, recruiting um, process, I literally entered the portal 20 minutes in. Craig Bell called me and said they wanted me to come play at the, at the University of Florida. And I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, it kind of just – I was so comfortable at Coastal and I was so – I guess it was just uh, like stepping out of my comfort zone and really – you know, pushing my limits and trying to like reach my maximum potential. Um, that was ulti my ultimate goal. And I didn't know where that would be, but I mean, what a better fit for me um, this year with a prestigious degree that I'll, you know, I will get in the next 
you know, how, I don't know how many semesters, cause I lost a lot of credits, but either next semester or uh, next spring and uh, what a, you know, a fantastic program to play for. Um, I guess my claim to fame now is I've played for two national championship uh, winning programs, which not a lot of people can say. So it's pretty, a pretty special thing. Yeah. So Sully has really identified you as being a team leader, a guy that's you know been huge to the culture. And yet you just came in as a guy who'd been, you know, almost an entire career at another school. What do you think allowed you to do that? Why has that been such a good fit for you in terms of a leadership position, despite coming in so late? Well, honestly, like my personal opinion is that I just came in. I just want to be myself. I wasn't really trying to be a leader, trying to be somebody that, you know, the team can look up to. I was honestly just trying to get everybody to understand who I am as a person, you know, what I stand for, what the type of player I am, my work ethic and that kind of sort of thing. Um, I think as the season from the fall kind of progressed into the spring itself, the fact that we had such a young team uh, full of really young guys, freshmen, uh, things of that sort. We didn't have a lot of guys that really established themselves um, as players on this team prior, other than Judd and and Josh and 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 Brandon and Hunter, a few few other guys. For me, it was it just kind of fell into my lap. Obviously, you want somebody that's going to play on the field and and uh, put up some numbers that would want to be your leader, right? Somebody you look for or you look for um, for some leadership. But I think it just kind of fell in my lap, and I think that Sully kind of I guess realized that um, as the season went on. And kind of got a feel for who I am and just kind of just kind of happened. I don't think it was really forced, which is probably the best thing that could have happened. Mm -hmm. So in in terms of playing, you've played at at multiple schools now in multiple conferences. And I imagine there are some similarities, but there's also some differences. How do you sort of compare and contrast uh, playing at Coastal versus playing at Florida? I would say just the plethora of talent. I mean, you'll look at those. the mid-major conferences such as the Sun Belt, you're going to have really high-level players, um, but it just won't be as um, as high in abundance. Like we'll play at Coastal, and for instance, Ethan Wilson was a first-round pick last year. We played him every year against South Alabama. Um, Hunter Gaddis was a really good pitcher from Georgia State. Um, Levi Thomas from Troy. Um, you know, you can name a lot of different players from Coastal as well. Parker Chavers, Mike Morrison. Um, uh, Michael Piaz, um, you know, a bunch of different people. But in the SEC, you're facing those guys on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You have a shortstop, a center fielder, a first baseman, a DH, a catcher. You know, you have all these guys on the field at once that are like that. It's not like you're seeing them um, every other day or every other weekend. Um, so I would say that's the only the only difference that you're seeing it on an everyday basis in one through nine in the lineup. Hmm. When I know another thing you've been doing is is providing a lot of guidance to these young pitchers as well, and you know being that guy behind the plate, how important that is. Uh, what's that role been like for you? How is that something again you thought you would do, or is it kind of just happened organically? I do think it happened organically. Um, I think I just brought a lot of insight of what I've learned in the past from people that I've um, I've you know looked up to and had mentorship from. Um, I also did play quarterback in high school, so I kind of have that. Um, I guess kind of instilled in me in which you kind of have to be that role um, for your team um, when you're in control like that in a game. So playing catcher is really, it's really kind of come easy to me, I think, but I do think, like I said prior, I think a lot of it's just very natural. It wasn't forced. It wasn't anything. Just guys, you know, looked for information, looked for the guy um, to help, help them out with a lot of the, the process things that are not so easy to get by as a freshman. And uh, you know, I just kind of ran with it. 
who are some major leaguers that you look up to? Do you have certain players you try and model yourself after or parts of different people's game that you try and pull into yourself? You know, I, a lot of, that's a pretty, I guess a lot of people ask that question. <laughs> Uh, I guess that's the best way to put it for a lack of better term. It's too basic. <laughs> no, it's a great question. That's why people ask it. Um, but for me, I've never really looked at somebody that mimic their game or emulate them um, as a player. I feel more just as a person and character wise, I do that. I think good things happen to good people. And if you, you do right by people, you treat people right, you do the right thing. Um, you're truthful, you're honest, you're upfront. I think a lot of those things help you in success in other areas. Um, so I wouldn't really say a lot of things that I do on the baseball field are because I watch others. Um, I think a lot of the things are just what I like to pick apart character-wise. Hopefully soon, you'll be playing in the majors, right? We don't know when it's going to be, but hopefully soon. Give me three ballparks that you would most want to play in. When you watch games now, you're like, gosh, I really want to play in that ballpark. I want to hit off. I want to hit in that park. What, what are your like top three? Well, we're both from Atlanta and it would, it would be wrong of me to not say Fulton County stadium, but that's not possible. So I'll wow, say, okay. <laughs> I'll say truest park. Now you can go to the parking lot and try to hit it to the Hank Aaron yeah. spot in the parking lot. Yeah. I used to do that as a kid. Can't do that anymore, <laughs> but uh, I would say that one. And then, I mean, it's really hard not to say Fenway mm-hmm. um, one for a lefty. It's pretty easy to put it out to right. And two is yeah. how, you know, historic it is and probably Wrigley field. I think that's just, I'm an old soul. I kind of like the old baseball feel, not the new updated mm. park type stuff. That's that's just me. So like the new Yankee Stadium that's made to be like the old Yankee Stadium, but is not old Yankee Stadium. That is that's not authentic enough for you. Yeah, I'm not a Yankee fan at also all. Also that, do, right. Also that. I despise the Yankees. If I don't have to go there, I have been there. If I don't have to go there again, it won't break my heart. <laughs> Yankees, if you're listening, you can still draft him. You can still draft him. <laughs> he will still play for the Yankees if you guys want him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, when you're when you're away from the game, what do you like to do off the field? Uh, I love to be outdoors. I love fishing. Um, you know, it's been awesome moving down to Florida now that my uh, my family moved down there and have a boat and everything. We go out and fishing and you know go out on the sandbar and hang out. It's a lot of stuff I like to do when I'm home. Uh, I love to golf. Love to hunt. It's pretty much about it. Love to be outdoors, interact with people, do social things. I also read that you're a great pool player, which that's a, that's a nice social activity. Um, how how good are we talking? Like, give me, get, are you like a hustler level good? Or are you just like enjoy playing? What are we talking about here? Oh, I love playing, and hustling's not too not too bad either. But I'd rather play somebody with some competition. You know? Okay. Okay. Yeah. If you ask if you ask anybody, I'm the best pool player there is. No, no one wants to play you. That's the one thing I will say. I'm a pretty good pool player. <laughs> the only person I can't beat is my dad. Okay, that I had that for a long time. Then once I started beating my dad, I felt like I could beat anybody. Um, yeah. Right. Do you like? Are you are you doing jump shots? Like how technical are we getting here? How creative are our shots? Trick shots? Oh, I'm not. I'm not that good. You're I mean, not I'll there. Do, okay. I'll do a couple cool things, but I'm not going to do anything too special. Just if you miss a shot, I'm not going to miss mine. Okay, I respect that. I'll I'll teach you my jump shot sometime. It's a it's a great it's a very cool party trick, and sometimes it helps you beat people. Sounds uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> couple final things for you. This has been a really interesting season for the team, right? It's been a real roller coaster. There were times when it seemed like all was lost, and then now we're at a point where everything's riding high, and you know you guys are potentially going to be able to host in postseason now. 
what has Sully done to get you guys through the peaks and valleys of this year? Because they've been pretty steep. You know, I mean, Sully's seen it all. Um, I feel like he tells that to us all the time. He's seen so many different things and so many different teams, so many different players, so many different dynamics of players on a team with within different years. Um, I think the best thing that he's done is just really try to create a good formula for us, which, which ultimately has made us successful, right? So, like, that's the best thing about baseball is, although it, it does suck sometimes, it's like it is so up and down. Um, but all those downs come with experiences and, and things like that and things to learn from uh, to help you be more successful in the future. And I think the best thing he's done is just really try to relate so many different situations to us to where we can really understand what we need to do and create that, you know, that potion or that formula for us to be successful moving forward. And I think that we have learned, those young guys really have learned, even in my case, places that I haven't been before, things that I haven't seen before I've learned from. And uh, hopefully we can continue to go on that, that hot path and, you know, make a run at this thing. Yeah. If you had to put your finger on maybe one or two things that have led to this end of season renaissance you guys have had, what, what do you think those key ingredients have been? Getting the young pitchers going. Um, obviously, we have really fantastic arms and, and so much talent in our bullpen and in our starting rotation. Brandon's really gotten going and solidified himself as a Friday guy for us and, and win games on Fridays. Neely's come into the, the Saturday spot and, and, uh, and done a really good job as a freshman, you know, being on the off SEC freshman team. Um, given us a lot of really good starts and, and done really well in that role. And Pogue coming off of TJ, um, being the guy he wants to be, um, giving us a good start on Sunday to either sweep or, or win a series. And uh, I think just, you know, continuing to learn. And like I said, just getting experience and whatever our bats, we're going to we're gonna be hot. Like we have so much talent in our, in our lineup, one to nine. Um, you know, championship teams play defense and, and throw and pitch well. I mean, there's every other team that has won a national championship in the national championship in the past has had a really good three starters and a good middle guy that can fill in a middle relief guy that can throw two innings and a good closer guy that can close out a game. And if you don't have that, then it's going to be hard to win and put together some, some wins together. So I think that's what we have right now. And hopefully we, like I said, we can keep it going. Final question for you should have been my first question. What does BT stand for? (laughs) Bradley Taylor. My uh, my grandma's name is Barbara Taylor, and uh, they gave me her, her last name is my middle name. And ever since I came out of the womb, I was I was BT. So. You're always you've always been BT. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, BT, thank you for bringing that same energy to this podcast here today. I uh, wish you a lot of luck going through the rest of the season and and wherever the future takes you. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it, man. And that's gonna do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.